With all that the tree symbolizes, immortality, the divine center and source of life, sustenance of life, life everlasting, wisdom, the abode of the gods, the ascension of the soul. We learn what it means to uncover our true identities, to be healed and whole, sovereign children of the Divine Father and the Divine Mother, from the Mother Tree. Hey everyone, before we dive into this delicious interview with Catherine Ice on Tag, I wanted to tell you about an upcoming event that my co-host Jess, along with Natalie of Natalie Jean Art and Kira Leeper, are creating to celebrate the Divine Feminine over here in our corner of the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. So this event is called Celebrating the Divine Feminine Art Show and Lecture Series. So this event will be happening on April 22nd, 2023 at the Grapevine Convention Center. In order to secure the venue and pay for all associated costs, they will be having a fundraiser from October 15th to November 15th. There will be gifts and surprises throughout for those who donate. So please check out nataliejeanart.com slash DFW Divine Feminine Event for more info and also how to donate, submit poetry, or volunteer at the event. You can also see their Instagram at her.scriptures or nataliejeanart for fundraiser details starting October 15th. Thank you so much. Let's listen to our episode. Welcome back to In Her Image, a podcast where we are seeking and celebrating our mother God through scripture, scholarship, the arts, and everyday life. I'm your host, Kate, and this evening I am thrilled to welcome back Catherine Knight Sontag, the author of The Tree at the Center, and also a new book, The Mother Tree. Her books are incredible. We've had her on, um, Sarah and Jess interviewed her last year, and I got this book for Mother's Day this year, and um, even though it's a relatively short book, it's one that takes time to just kind of soak in every minute, so I'm, I'm really grateful that I am doing this podcast because now I get to visit with the author. So Catherine, welcome back. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here with you. So I think I'll just jump in. <laughs> and um, actually, if you can give people a, a brief summary of kind of where it all started with The Tree at the Center, um, if they're not familiar with that book. And then we'd like love to hear, you know, how this next book was inspired. Sure. I've always had a fascination with The Tree of Life. Since I was a young child, it was an image that always spoke to me, and I began to see it sort of repeated throughout space and time. And obviously, in our LDS theology, we have the very um, pronounced image from the Book of Mormon as the as eternal life and the source of um, our joy, um, partaking of the fruit of that tree, and I 
was very interested to see how other cultures and religions interpreted the image. When I did my master's thesis in landscape architecture, I was able to study that image again. So I studied archetypal images in sacred landscapes. And the tree of life was one of those images that uh, I kept reading about, that it was just sort of ubiquitous. And I began to see a connection to the divine feminine in that image, which was fascinating to me, as well as the threefold structure of the cosmos. So looking at the roots, the trunk, and the branches above was a way that the tree was sort of um, dissected and interpreted in many uh, cosmologies and mythologies. And that was really fascinating to me. So I was learning about all of this and became pregnant with my first child. And it sort of dawned on me that the reason why I had always been drawn to the natural world and specifically to trees was because was because of this very feminine connection and a divinely feminine connection. And as my child was growing inside of me, I realized that I was functioning as the image of the tree in the sense that like the cosmic tree, this tree that holds the image of the cosmos I was connecting these different realms of existence. I was bringing a soul from one realm, a celestial realm into a mortal realm. And that shook everything up for me. That changed everything for me. It was uh, sort of an unfolding of a dimension of self that I could never have fathomed. And all of this sort of happened in conjunction with my own investigation of Feminism, looking into ecofeminism, um, coming up against some hard truths about inequality, and um, looking at intersectional feminism. And I wanted a way to sort of alchemize all of this knowledge, to weave it together. And since I was a young child, I've always written poetry. And so that felt like the most natural way to sort of process all of my feelings and to create to create something out of these new experiences. So that was the birth of the tree at the center. After I wrote that, I, so I had done a few, uh, I want to say like five or six years of sort of academic study and published my thesis. And then I published an academic piece. Um, I wrote it for the uh, Mormon scholars in the humanities conference, but it was published in dialogue. So that was sort of, a some a summary of the academic work I had done. So I had this poetry work and I had academic work. And so I was actually, I started to write an outline for an essay. And I got a call from Bill Turnbull at Faith Matters, whom I had never met, um, sort of pitching the idea of a book. And that was really amazing because it, everything sort of lined up in terms of the readiness of the work to come out and walking through the image of the tree as, as it's meant to, to be examined from a spiritual perspective, meaning that it's an image of ascent. It's an image that takes you through from the dark realm of the underworld up into the branches of the heaven. And it, it flushes out a path 
of spiritual ascent that I think is lacking from most Christian denominations in the sense that most of Christianity has lost a lot of its mystic origin and part of the feminist feminine um, sort of slant to this image and to the mother does draw back into the, the mystic side of what it means to be, to become. So, so that's sort of how the mother tree came about. Oh, that's an awesome, like opportunity. Somebody said, I think you can repackage this, like you said, in a way that can appeal to everyone, Yeah, you know, and at the same time, it's very, there's, there's a lot of layers to it. And then there's a lot of your personality too. Like you share some of your own personal stories um, that I really appreciated, you know, hearing about your own spiritual experiences with the earth and uh, with your ancestors. When you were talking about the tree kind of being lost, it reminded me of a, a note I wrote in, in, you know, annotated the book. You know, we don't see this tree of life. Like it's very clouded for us. And I realized like, I can't, I don't even like picture the tree of life because in particular during the temple endowment presentation, the tree of life is like uh, maybe five seconds. And it's like, there's like this golden cloud around it. And I just, that kind of struck me as like sort of um, symbolic of like where she is in our theology as well. She's, you know, your book goes into like how she's this really important central figure at the center. And yet like in the whole presentation she gets like a few seconds you know and I mean she's missing in other ways as well but I love that's why I love this one reason why I love this book is just diving into the significance of that what we lose um by ignoring that so where um please go into more about where the idea of mother god being a tree and also this phrase the mother tree like if, if someone hasn't heard that distinction before what is a mother tree so again the image is tied to sort of the ancient and archetypal framing of the universe and when i say archetypal i mean that it's an image that is held within the collective unconscious so it's kind of a jungian interpretation of an archetype, which is something that I'm very comfortable with because it, it, it tracks, like it resonates, you see it manifest. And like I said, these depictions, whether in art or archaeology or like the written sort of mythologies and cosmologies of peoples, that the tree holds these layers of meaning that transcend space and time. So of course, with each culture, whether it's Mayan or Celtic or Norse, there's very specific traditions and associations with the tree. But underneath all of that adornment, there's the same structural integrity that that maps in our psyche. And so seeing the mother specifically as a tree within uh, ancient Israelite framing, which is very connected to our temple theology first was understood 
by me through the work of Margaret Barker and Daniel C. Peterson and a few other um, archaeologists and people who who have really studied the purpose of temple worship, how it was, you know, as, as best as we can reconstruct, especially with the first temple, the the placement of objects within the temple, the cult images, the figurines of women that they found, thousands of them all through the land, and the very clear sort of um, evidence that the mother was a mainstream goddess, not a Canaanite. I mean, Canaan, the Canaanites had their own set of gods, but it wasn't the Asherah that we're talking about within ancient Israelite um, worship was mainstream. The Israelites were not monotheistic. They were polyth- polytheistic. And you know, like the Deuteronomists loved to, to sort of read monotheism onto the text and reinterpret things. So sort of understanding that more and trying to um, really engage with the image in that specific realm helped me connect the image of the menorah in the temple, to the tree of life, to Asherah, who was worshipped in groves, uh, whose name itself means Asher means happy, and then it also refers to grove. So there's this connection between trees and happiness, right? So we have that same connection we see in the Book of Mormon of like eternal life and a tree, and the fruit of the tree being Christ. So who creates the fruit, right? It's the mother. So these connections started to become more clear. I found her in the book of Proverbs as wisdom, a capital W, a feminine personification of wisdom, um, interchangeable with the tree of life. So wisdom slash the tree of life. Uh, And that was one, one place. There's a lot of apocryphal texts that connect mother God um, to the tree of life. There's the, the book of wisdom, the book of weeks, um the apocalypse of enoch so just sort of taking those texts into consideration and and paired with my own physical experience right like my own embodied experience of what it means to be female and cycle through like life death life within my own cycles and giving birth and those connections um it all sort of solidified for me and then mother tree is really fantastic because while i was writing this book i started out with that title from the essay the the paper that i wrote for dialogue and as i was finishing the book all of this information was coming out about bio- the biological term, the mother tree. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and so when we talk about the mother tree from that perspective, it's talking about the, the most ancient, the oldest elder trees of a forest that um, are so familiar with the, the immediate ecology and all the species that inhabit the same the same area through the networks of fungi through um their own sensory perception they're able to sort of tell what hurts and what harms in the forest to give sustenance to their offspring and even to other 
um, species who are helpful or beneficial to them. And so there's this sense that they care for all the other species around them, but also that they hold memory, that they're able to hold sometimes millennia of experiences inside of their own selves and that 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 information, that wisdom is passed on. So there's a lot of beautiful overlap between the actual biological function of a mother tree and uh, the image of of the tree as a mother in terms of the the maternal care and also the power to sort of store important information and wisdom. Yes, it's so fascinating. Your last book, The Tree at the Center, kind of spurred me into interest in that in that um and I read earlier this year the hidden life of trees and anyone who's interested in more about the incredible capabilities of I mean the incredible life of trees really go to your library and check that book out because it really changes our you know kind of western view of like tree object into like tree is a being exactly like me, uh, speaks a little differently, but. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. So we have this archetype, like you said, of, of the cosmic tree. So can you briefly lay that out for us? You kind of talked about the roots, the trunk and the crown, how they kind of symbolize different things. And Yeah. So Basically, the root system is known as the realm of the dead or the underworld. So it's sort of the realm of the ancestors where their wisdom is stored, uh, where our shadows lie. So it can be sort of a very, the cosmological center would be sort of like this underworld, but then it can also be past experiences. It can be um, the shadow land of our psyche. So there's different like layers of meaning within that space. The trunk is sort of our present sphere, the the mortal sphere in which we live. And that is very much informed by our connection to the underworld and also our connection to the heavens. So it's that bridge point, but it's very much like the present embodied experience we're having. And then the branches above or the crown represents the celestial sphere or celestial divine wisdom and uh, sort of the eternal branching of of those uh, limbs into the heavens and the extension that happens into new realms from our from our ability to sort of balance out and move through the the processes of transformation that happen. And so, the mother tree invites each of us to kind of embody each of these phases or go through them in some way. Um, so that is the kind of the rough sketch of your book, the mother tree is diving into different aspects here of this. So let's talk about the roots. You said this can reference the ancestors, our ancestors, the past, um, you know, our, the foundation, like you, you talk about Adam and Eve and those stories and also our shadow selves, the things that are going on under the surface. Mm-hmm. So why do you think Heavenly Mother invites us into the underworld or, or in what ways? 
I can read a brief quote from my book. <laughs> yes. Okay. As I, t- as I turn inward, mother asks me to question what matters. What if the cultural identifiers of merit by which I have perceived my worth were taken away, stripped from me as they were from Job? What of me remains? I attempt to see what is real, to follow the path of my heavenly parents and brother, to do the work of reckoning and let die in me the things I think I ought to uproot in others. I try to tune into the emotional and intuitive landscapes of my soul and the more nuanced ways of relating to the world. A profound inward listening allows for what is to be. Many times this looks like turning inward to face, admit to, and acknowledge pain. Tuning into our own pain, which so often includes the sorrow we feel, watching those we love suffer, we allow it to fully express itself so that our hearts can experience it completely. In this state of vulnerability, our suffering is sanctified. Connections are made. Our chemical makeup alters imprinted with expansive emotional landscapes. So I know there's a lot of um, questions around the term feminine, masculine. What do those really mean? There's um, a lot of tension around gender roles and identity. I tried very much in this book to stick again with archetypal interpretations of energies and aspects of a self that um, express as sort of passive or active energy as absorption or penetration as light or dark. So it's a very um, yin and yang approach uh, in terms of the masculine and feminine that I have taken on for the purposes of this this book. So when I talk about the tree taking us into a feminine realm and why that, why would the Shadowland be inherently feminine? It is because of that absorption quality. It is about that introspective quality about going inward and being vulnerable and having to make connections and having to sort of uh, assess a lot of things at the same time, which I think generally speaking, people resonate with that as those, those specific qualities as feminine. And so part of our task in mortality is to do sort of the outward performative things to help us progress linear, you know, ways of demonstrating our faith and our commitment. But that is uh, nothing if we're not doing the inner work, if we're not being self-aware, if we're not examining uh, who we are and why we have certain beliefs and sort of breaking apart which beliefs are actually serving us and which ones are not. And I find a lot of that to be inherently feminine. And that doesn't mean only females can do that work or should do that work or are better at that work. It just means that we all have that aspect of ourselves that helps us uh, move through these, these very necessary parts of transformation and growth. Yeah, it's, um, it's another way, you know, before I even really thought about all these things, you know, um, earlier this year, I did an episode about 
how our female bodies are cyclical. And then I like likened all the phases of our cycle to like phases of a tree. And I wasn't really thinking like, and the mother is the mother tree. But um, anyway, it's that cycle is a balancing of like production and, and rebirth and death. Yeah. Right. And rest. Setting rest. Yeah. So if we are continually, you know, like our current society continually be the same way every day, you know, moving forward, like you said, in those linear ways, we can end up spinning our wheels. And but that like resting contemplative period of time is finding the traction underneath our wheels and sort of also so that we can decompose and shed the things that aren't serving us anymore as well. That takes time. And that's kind of a a feminine process. Yeah, And there's a lot of, there's a lot of pain that arises in this part of our journey. There's a lot of anger and a lot, a lot of trauma. And I think for women in particular who are seeking the mother, I think many of them are surprised that in seeking her, they're sort of required to deal with that, like deal with their trauma and deal with their anger and frustration, their rage and process through it and deal with the sort of competitive, unhealthy ways that we view other women. And so, yeah, a lot of that just sort of comes up and you have to, you know, in kindness and in patience, face it and uh, be okay being vulnerable. Because I think women, I think maybe it's easier for us to get there perhaps, but I think we are all trained, at least in our very Western (laughs) postmodern culture that vulnerability is a weakness i mean thank goodness for people like Brene brown who are like literally showing us like in a very measurable way how that's just not serving us and not reality like vulnerability is necessary to a healthy existence but we're still i think there's a bit of lag to us really embracing that yeah absolutely and i also think you know, I'm grateful for all the women and men who have gone before me to kind of midwife that experience for me too. You know, I, um, another book that I recognize that like you have also (laughs) read is I was, um, what's the word oscillating between this book and women who run with the wolves. So it's like, I would read this book. And then like, once I got to a part that I had to like, chew on that I would go to those but she's someone I mean that book is not recent but she is such a midwife to so many of us yeah and yeah and I appreciate you know you in in this section of the book you go into like the patriarchy and you're just like this is part of our roots that we we have to face it and understand it um and it feels uh you know, it feels hard, but <laughs> I was like, what's, what's a nice yeah. way <laughs> But then on page 15, so I was like reading it one night and just feeling the heaviness of it. But 
you said, because they rely on inequality, hierarchical structures of power cannot survive in Zion. And that I just underlined that and just like closed the book and marinated in that. Like that's such a hopeful feeling to me is, you know, I think sometimes that's the, that's the wave that the wave of pain that makes you think like, I can't survive. This is like, this is the kingdom of God as it is. And it's always going to be this way. But then you just came out and said like, guess what? It's not always going to be this way. You know, no matter who thinks it is, uh, that's not Zion. So it's hard work. Yeah. Yeah. And this was a tricky, it was tricky (laughs) to write this, right? Because patriarchy has so many meanings so many meanings and so it's hard to even bring up the word without someone's brain you know you know people are going to very probably different places but all very triggering (laughs) um but yeah i and i think it's also very difficult because people are at different points in their spiritual journey like there's there's the difference between like people being of equal worth and having equal um, merit and people being at different places that it, like it's not measurable by us. I want to say measurable by God in the sense of like where they are developmentally and that's on all fronts, right? Like spiritually, emotionally, physically, like there's, there's so many different ways of sort of, figuring out where someone is, but it's not something that any of us can do (laughs) as mortals. So there is, so, you know, we see the way that the church is structured, for example, and there is a hierarchy in the sense that there is, you know, there are people in power above others who have lesser power in the church or less decision-making abilities. Um, And if we were all to sort of, abide righteously in those roles um but we're told that that's literally not possible in dnc like it's pretty much impossible and then you know on top of that women not really being even included in that framework it's just uh very clear to me that that is not that is very much a telestial organization and um it's okay for us to want more for ourselves collectively amen yeah like i i like how you said you know a lot of us were just i mean that my experience i'll speak for myself what heavenly mother like oh this is so delicious to me this is so delicious to me and then like whatever point you know but i'm not going to become angry and i'm like there's no reason to be angry <laughs> until you realize that, that there um, can be, but it's also cyclical. So that brings me back. I'm just going to share one of the last paragraphs of mm. this section and then we can move on. But you said, we don't enter the underworld just once. If we remain open to our mother's call, we will cycle down as many times as we are asked to generate deeper wisdom and deeper levels of trust in the divine and deeper degrees of healing the wounded feminine. The heart must break open again and again to incorporate and integrate bodily earthbound wisdom gathered in the cells and strata of our being. 
In a world where we are consistently wounded by distortions of worthiness, this radical commitment to transformation is the way we live the profound intuition of the body and spirit to discern our reality and move in the power of divine love. So I can I can't overstate that enough. I can't get enough of that reminder if you're in the bottom of that cycle right now. Um know that you will come up and also know that you will continue to cycle but that this is part of learning to trust the divine even more and to um, heal not only yourself but possibly even your ancestors you know to heal the world so the roots are so important we would not cut them off of a tree yep. if we did it would be bad yeah that's beautifully said Thank you. So let's move on to above ground, the trunk. It can represent our earth life or the present moment. You talk about it as tapping into inner knowing and staying grounded in what is real. So how has Heavenly Mother grounded you? Such a good and hard question to answer. <laughs> um, a lot of my experiences with the mother are very hard to verbalize. Um, I I talk about a few of them in the book, uh, a lot of them revolving around uh, nature <laughs> and these moments of bringing either sorrow or anger or really difficult questions or just a feeling of discontent to the mountain or to a trail and um having myself acknowledged in this greater vision of the world like as one piece of it and i think that you know of course it's a bit of a cliche that you go out in the wider world and you realize how small you are and things come into perspective but it's so real in the sense that especially in nature especially when you can be there alone in solitude you're able to tap into a stillness that's inside of you but also inside of every living thing and so there's this immediate communion that you have with all of these spirits who are divine, who are living a divine celestial law, as we learn in DNC. And um, there's nothing more grounding than that in the sense that it has more weight and more power uh, when the spirit moves through you especially in those moments when you're communing than anything else right like and it it really is a practice of 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 tuning into your own intuition and your own wisdom because i think when we're all in different places and in, in understanding what that is and how to access it but if you sort of equate that with the light of christ we all have it like we all have the capacity, no matter where we are, no matter how broken we feel or how traumatized we feel or how lost we feel, to re-enter that space, that heart space, that 
will always direct us on our path. It's a, it's a forever thing. And so there is something, again, uniquely feminine in that returning to a self, in that coming back and questioning and seeking. The feminine is also associated, you know, archetypally with chaos. And by chaos, I don't mean like a negative connotation. I mean a place of sort of maybe desperate elements, disparate elements, um, unorganized matter, right? Like the idea that there's things that are brewing, things that are like working themselves out, coming together. And it's the womb space. It's the space where things are being formed. And that is one of the most mm, solidifying experiences of a spiritual quest is having those moments where you're allowing yourself to question. So chaos, right, is also a realm of questioning. So the feminine is also like allowing yourself to say, I don't fully comprehend this to doubt because doubt is what like breaks open possibility, like a space for possibility for being wrong, for not knowing, for expansion. And so the more we allow ourselves to do that, the more we allow for our roots to grow deeper and hold us more firmly, um, as well as, you know, that, that allows for the expansion of the crown. So, um, it's really interesting because the moments I talk about in the book, especially, you know, going out when I was young, um, teenager, when I had an argument with my parents and like walked up to the mountains and just like laid in the dirt, um, just feeling completely like so sad that my own parents didn't understand me like a, a a real sense of disconnect between myself and the people who I wanted to rely on the most um it became indistinguishable for me like the feeling of coming coming into God's love and coming into myself like my own divine essence spoke to me and that was the same as God. And I really feel um, because, because of the way the earth holds spirit and embodiment in a celestial order, um, that that really is our closest, like, tangible uh, way to encounter divinity if we're just open and listening. And then, of course, <laughs> you know, we're taking all of this that we learn through our cycling and hopefully we're extending it to the people that are in our lives, um, to our families, to our friends, to our coworkers, that we're manifesting this rootedness 
uh, in how we treat each other. Yeah. And I love how you kind of showed how the trunk, the now, the tuning into our essence, our divine essence is what holds all of it together. You know, as a, the trunk of a tree connects the root and the crown, it connects our history and our future. Yeah, exactly. It is who we are. And I, I was starting to think like, man, we're really missing that sort of in our religious practices. But then I just thought about the temple and there's lots of uh, different experiences with the temple. But one thing you can say about it, you know, is that it does provide a space to be somewhere, just be somewhere with only yourself and the divine. Um, it is an opportunity, and that's something that that I've treasured today in Relief Society. The the teacher was talking about President Iring's talk, and she kept kind of highlighting uh, this part. He says it has never been more important than it is now to understand how to build on the sure foundation of Christ, and she's like. You know, he says now is the most important time. It's never been more important. And I'm kind of thinking like now is the only time we have. Like there is no other time than now. So it's not like he's saying like in 2022 is way more important than in 1980 it was. That statement is absolutely true. No matter when you live, now is the only time you can build a foundation on Jesus Christ or do anything for that matter. And so, yeah, I just love that you connected. You know, I I think meditation is something that, and, and spending time in nature is a common thread that we hear from a lot of people that have been seeking the mother, that they find that unplugging in some way, not thinking about the future or the past necessarily, but just being in their bodies now. And also, you know, connecting with our physical bodies and being aware of them. I think it's it's easier than we realize to be totally disconnected from our body, not realize what we're feeling or feeling pain in some way or we're feeling tension in some part of our body. But um yeah, what a gift. And then what therapy it is to go out in nature and have nature say like, you belong to me. You're not separate from me to, to come home. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, you know, back to the hidden life of trees, when you start realizing that everything around you really is as sentient as you are, that changes things as Mm -hmm. well to realize, yeah, these, these are my kindred spirits. Yeah. Um, creations of my mother. So, all right, I could go on. <laughs> um, anything else you want to touch on with the trunk? I think maybe just to lead into the crown. Um, one thing that you got very close to, and I think alluded to, is that the the ability to be in the now is really the key to unlocking eternity. Mm. And that we can talk about what that means for a really long time, but um, in the sense that we've gathered enough of a vision of what the self really is, 
and what mortality is really about to know that, like you said, this is all we have, this moment. And therefore, it is as precious to us as eternity, as the time we would have after this life. And so it really does become eternity. Wow. And I think that's what grants us the access to that eternal wisdom, to really uh, gauging and having a vision of what is really above us, quote unquote, right? Like if we're using the, the structure of the tree, the crown is above, but it really is just demonstrating higher levels of consciousness. I love that vision that I write about in the book about the gospel of Mary and um, the gospel of the beloved companion, where it, like her vision of transcendence is going through the boughs of a tree and moving through seven boughs of a tree, right? So moving through to completion, to be a completed human, essentially addressing these messengers who are giving her a false message of who she is. So she's literally coming up against delusions and saying, no, that's not real. Like you're not real. And then she can pass. I just think there's so much there in terms of what you're saying, you know, like the process of this life is to do that work. Like the purpose is to consistently understand in every context with every voice that's coming in and telling us what matters, what doesn't, what doesn't. And if we're really not vigilant, which means if we're really not present, we will be swayed subconsciously at least. So yeah, it's been a huge uh, revelation to me to like piece all of that together. Yeah. I think that there is a big tendency in the church and I don't know, in, in other faiths to just, yeah, think about like, well, the term itself, endure to the end, um, really to me has always kind of given me a vision of like, just hanging on until I get to the good part until Jesus comes and I'll have my ducks all in a row. I'll, you know, make sure that I've repented and become you know, good enough to be there at that day when things get good. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's like a better way to think about it. I think if not just for my own happiness in the present, but that's the point is why not make Zion right now? Why not make a celestial relationship with my spouse or my children? Why not, um, you know, the, the purpose of repentance or, you know, that word is um, a little bit fraught, I think, but I think of repentance as just making my relationship with God. How today am I making a better relationship with God? And, you know, the Book of Mormon saying like, today is the day of our probation, you know, our, our opportunity to meet God is, or to prepare to meet God is now. Mm-hmm. But, but again, it's like, meet God now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's a quote that I love. I mean, it's like a Chinese saying. I don't know if we know who really said it, but it's just 
Renew thyself completely with each day. Do it again and again and forever again. Mm. And I think if we thought about repentance in that way as a returning, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a, it's a lot more invigorating. It's a lot more hopeful. It's a lot more like I'm I'm just coming back to myself and coming back to God and coming back to what's true. There's no element of punishment or guilt or shame in that, I don't think. Yeah, I had a institute teacher who, you know, he talked about the symbolism of baptism, right? Where it's a death and resurrection. But he said that every single morning when you sit up in bed, like you are being resurrected to new life. Um, I really yeah. love that. Yeah. So what does the crown represent? We kind of touched on it. We're talking about heaven. Yeah. So another term for the divine mother that Margaret Barker in particular likes um, is lady wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I know that comes from some ancient source. I just don't remember what it is. (laughs) I think it's a Greek uh, translation. Anyway, but but seeing that wisdom has been tied to the feminine and specifically to the tree of life in Proverbs and in other places, I really loved uh, talking about the crown as sort of this seat of celestial wisdom. And that, again, is uniquely feminine, right? There's knowledge and there's wisdom. Knowledge will say is more about maybe data points or certain under like having facts, having information, but the wisdom, as we know from the story of King Solomon is how to apply that, that information. So there's the networking effect again, that is uniquely feminine of like how you bring together information and give it meaning. So there's an element of meaning creation that is just not uh, a part of, let's say, like the hyper rationality that exists, or uh, it exists, but really had its heyday back in the Enlightenment. So, so there's this understanding that accessing um, sort of divine celestial wisdom is having a vision of the paths of everything that lives understanding the purposes of creation right it's entering into this godly wisdom that is not just information it's a way of being and so if we're not sort of already mapping our days by this orientation which is the mother right she and we didn't really talk about this yet but within that cosmic tree framing she's the axis mundi she's the world axis which means with that cosmological structure the the celestial realm the earthly realm the underworld the tree marks the vertical point in space and time so from that central point uh the cardinal directions uh expand throughout space and that is sort of the 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 point by which we orient ourselves we know up from down we know left from right we know north from south not just in 
this space, but in a cosmic space and framing. Mm -hmm. And so looking at that sort of celestial realm is really fascinating to me because it's like the realm of imagination. It's an imaginal realm. And I don't mean, and I talk about this in the book, it's not necessarily like, oh, it's just sort of made up like a make-believe. It's no, like there's an actual way of knowing and being that is imaginal. And I think we understand this maybe more in terms of faith and uh, the way that Alma talks about faith as a seed and having a vision of the tree in the seed, that by faith, we know that the tree will, will become a tree springing up into eternal life, right? That's not a, a tree springing forth into everlasting life is not an actual physical tree, right? Mm-hmm. That's an imaginal tree. That's a tree of vision, of becoming. And so in this realm, we're able to expand our vision of what it means to be connected to each other, what it means to love each other eternally, what it means to uh, carry each other's sorrows and pains and how that is truly the de- definition of eternal life and joy because to know we see this in the example of our savior that true knowing is love like real knowing like knowing someone inside out taking on their pains and sorrows, their joys, embodying another individual is the only way to truly access love for them. And so what are we doing now uh, in our relationships that's allowing us to sort of embody the kind of compassion that can give us a glimmer of what it's like to like hold um, the love that is knowing the purposes of creation and each individual path of everything that's ever lived. Because, you know, in the Qumran texts, they're the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have that definition of the Holy of Holies space in the temple, that that space is the space for the wisdom, the mysteries of creation. And the mysteries of creation are understanding the paths of everything that lives. So if the mother, as the menorah, was central in that uh, holy of holy space, which we have evidence of, right? We have evidence that she was moved out of that space in, in later iterations of the temple. But we have so much, so much evidence that she, as the tree, was with the throne in the Holy of Holies. Um, What does that mean? What does that mean? And so there's a lot in this space that's sort of within the mystical realm, I would say, that we're looking at the mysteries of becoming and trying to um, bring a degree of humility and awe and... um, I don't know, like a deep gratitude, (laughs) I guess, that we're even able to contemplate like that space. Um, It was just a really, especially when I got to the end of 
writing this book in this last chapter, it was really beautiful to me to see how portions of the Book of Mormon and my understanding of the Tree of Life from Alma and Nephi and Lehi really uh, perfectly like exemplified this mystical way of knowing, but without these other texts, the apocryphal texts, the extra canonical texts, and other, you know, non-LDS scholars, I was able to actually see those images more clearly and value them more um, and have them come to life in a new way. So sorry, that was a long, (laughs) a long response to your question, but it was one of um, my favorite sections to write. Yeah. I love, you know, another word for when you're talking about the imaginal realm, like maybe this isn't right, but I just think of the visionary realm. And, you know, that's what Lehi and Mm -hmm. Nephi had was a vision of, of this tree and of the fruit and what it would mean to walk to this tree and taste of the fruit. And I mean, that's one of the things that I'm, you know, I appreciate about the church of Jesus Christ. Latter-day Saints is at least in, in many ways, we are still a, a visionary people. You know, we, we recognize the importance and, and the, reality of visions and yeah becoming something like god you know becoming our the fullness of our creation you know and and have an idea of that and that's part of the theology and the doctrine that um that i really cherish i on page 76 you said As we learn to trust her more, we in turn open ourselves to greater visions of what is real and lasting. Farther up is further in. We descend lower and lower and ascend higher and higher to continue to discover both ourselves and her. And when I read that line, I was like, oh, I see the imagery of myself becoming a tree as well. Yeah. Shooting my roots down and and lengthening my crown. And I think about, you know, the, the mother tree or the ancient tree drops her seeds all around her and she's there for centuries. And we all just grow up so slowly, just (laughs) touching whatever rays of light we can underneath her crown. We're protected by her. We're, we're receiving messages through the roots about what's healthy and we're, She's healing us through our roots. Um, she's sending messages and also moving so that that light can come through. And eventually, you know, we will, as like our now, like our, our trunk like fills out. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of nice that it's a slow process that that makes for a stronger tree. The fact that it's a yeah. slow process and then I don't know eventually I guess we <laughs> we grow up to be that so yeah I love that that imagery just like popped into my head you said like we do this we do the same thing we watch her and we 
we grow in both directions. So yeah, totally. So the last question that we have been asking our guests is how has the mother changed you? But I want to reframe it by quoting yourself back to you uh, (laughs) on page 88, because I just feel like it's, it's the same question, but I love how you wrote it. So, or 84, how do we show up in the world after we have tasted who the mother is? What does it look like to live into the reality of mother God expressed in you? I know those are kind of rhetorical questions when you write them, but yeah, so you can sort of answer just, just how has the mother changed you? What does that look like in your reality? Hmm. I think um, I've been lucky in the sense that since I was young, I've had what I would call the gift of discernment. I feel like I've had a, a deep, sense of self and that I've for the most part stayed pretty true to it and uh, have felt um, God present very strongly especially in my I'll say my first half of life Mm -hmm. (laughs) so as a child and going on a mission and coming back like I did very beautiful spiritual encounters that um, really solidified a lot of things for me. Finding and seeking the mother specifically has been like I finally found the source of a lot of that identity that I didn't even know was missing. So, you know, as a child, God as a as a as a man, as a male like identity, I mean that was present, but it wasn't like all encompassing. It wasn't like something that I was like, oh, he's my father, therefore I can only say X, Y, and Z to him, right? Like it was there was a projection there a bit of like what I knew of what it meant to be a father from my my earthly father but I never understood it as like a limiting factor in my spirituality but as I got older and I began to see the way that women have been treated and kept down and kept silent and muted and threatened and in a position of um, subordination throughout history And as I began to have my own experiences in my body as a female and um, awakening to a lot of the disparities and um, longings that I had for a wise feminine figure, it was then like when I began to discover this feminine landscape in the gospel and within scripture. And it was like, there it is. So it was like this deep recognition. Um, It wasn't surprising to me. It was sort of like, I mean, it was surprising in the sense of like my internal knowing uh, coming like face to face with an external validation. Like Mm. that was incredible. Um, But so, so I guess, my 
long response to your question is sort of like, I think we just, we show up and this is going to be different for everyone. Right. But for me, it meant it was like a validation of my deepest yearnings for communion and eternal, like rest and unity with all of creation, like to be in a, in a state of peace. And, um, and so I try to show up <laughs> remembering um, every day that that is the reality. And I think that, I think that it um, speaks also to our, our shedding of care about what others think in the sense that we honor truth above all else. And of course, we want to do things with love and compassion, but we are done with facades and we're done with mincing words and we're done with um, trying to just be nice. Uh, There's an immediacy and urgency to being fully awake. And I really love that idea that we, we read over and over again in the Book of Mormon that sin is a state of slumber. And we're admonished over and over again to awake and arise, right? To arouse our faculties. And so I feel the mother like strongly calling us to do that. And I, you know, I've always had that sense from Christ, like from Jesus, because that's what he did when he was here, right? Like that's exactly what he did. He called BS on everyone. like made us face our true selves and most of the world hated him for that and hated him to the point of murdering him for that. But I, I see the mother as the source of his courage in that sense. And so, um, yeah, I, I think for me, that's where it sort of that daily check-in of like, are you, are you being real today? <laughs> kind of comes into play. So, yeah. That's beautiful. I love that answer. It, I mean, to summarize what I heard is like shifting from like having a rich, beautiful spiritual life and discernment to like knowing where that came from and knowing that you have is impetus the right word? Like you have an imperative to act on it and to awaken fully and call others to do the same. I mean, that's, there was a naked pastor comic with Jesus and he's like kind of giving a tutorial and he's like, and then you flip it like this and he's flipping a table. Like, um, Nice. But that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think you're right. And and I love your answer. Catherine Knight Sontag, this conversation has been perfect. And I thank you for your time and for writing this book and everybody that was a part of that and uh, encouraging you, helping you to do that. And so thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you for all your fantastic questions and thoughts i've really appreciated it it's been it's been a joy you can find the the mother tree is 
published by Faith Matters. You can find it on Amazon or online. I'm guessing Faith Matters sells it on their website. Yeah, I think they'll just direct you to Amazon, but QNOR sells it on their online shop. And there's a few local places in Salt Lake. That's, I think that's it. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, but it's something like $12 and um, it's just a great one to have on your shelf. So encourage everybody to do that. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it. And if you haven't yet, please leave us a review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a monthly donation at anchor.fm slash inherimage. We hope you'll tune in next Sunday for another inspiring episode.